All right. Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Are you enjoying the weather outside? I am not so much enjoying the weather outside. I've been described in the past as painfully white. I burst into flames when I go out in the sun. So I'm okay when it gets cooler again. And you might not like me for that, but that's all right. When it's uh, summer, one of my favorite parts of summer is that baseball is on. Anybody like baseball in the room? Again, muted claps for baseball again. You're going to really enjoy the picnic next week. That's going to be great. Uh, but, but over the course of the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I have come to love baseball. I didn't grow up playing baseball, but I, but I love watching the game. And it's been fun throughout the summer. My wife is gracious enough to let the, the Jays games be on in the background. And my son is starting to look at the TV and he's starting to love it. He goes, oh, Blue Jays, baseball. And when the TV turns on, he just goes, home run, home run, home run. And he's just starting to love it. And a couple weeks ago, we had um, my niece and nephew with us visiting, and Lindsay's sister and her family. And, and my nephew is five, and one day we had the Blue Jays game on in the background, and he's asking all about baseball and learning more and more about it, wanting to know the rules. And then the next day, he goes, um, Uncle Tyson, do you think there's a Blue Jays game on today? And I was like, yes, there is, Nathan. Let's do this. So we turned it on again, and I'm starting to explain to him how each team scores a run and how there's uh, a team on offense and a team on defense at the same time. And I got to this one part that's kind of weird and unique for baseball, which is whether a pitch is called a ball or a strike. And the umpire is the one who gets to make that call. And I'm trying to explain it to him. And I got to this part and it's, I kind of didn't really know how to explain it because a pitch, you know, is a ball or a strike, but it's not really a ball or a strike until the umpire says it that way. And a story has been recorded about a famous umpire on one occasion taking a long time to call a particular pitch. And the hitter looks at him and he goes, well, was it a ball or was it a strike? And the umpire looked back at the player and said, son, it ain't nothing till I call it. Everything changes in that at-bat based on which word the umpire says. Is it a ball or is it a strike? Now this umpire's belief in the power of his words may have annoyed pitchers and batters alike, but the belief that speaking words which create a new reality is an ancient one and one that's connected with the prophets in Scripture. John, the author of Revelation, which is the book that we have been studying together for a few months in our series, Not As It Seems, is in some way like an umpire. He is calling out what he sees. And through John sharing these words and the images with us, they are not only describing what will happen, but in a way are bringing that process to pass. N.T. Wright puts it this way, this is how prophecy works. God's words are to become John's words in order that they may become reality. God reveals to John pictures and images, reveals what the future is going to look like in order that they may come to pass. And as we come to this series time and time again, to the words that John hears and what he sees, it's revealed to him once again that not all is as it seems. There is more to reality than what we can see with our unaided senses or sense with our unaided senses. There are baseball and you know, strike zones and umpires, but there are also spiritual realities at work today too. There is a real and a living God who is seated on the throne right now. And there is more to history than what we can just see with our eyes. 
And through these pictures and these prophetic words in Revelation, we are told and shown that things are not as they seem. And we're given an alternate story through John's words, which are God's words, of how things are and will be. And the images and the words continue today in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. These two chapters are filled with pictures and and symbols that are difficult to understand. Multiple scholars, as I was studying this passage for this morning's teaching, said that Revelation 10 and 11 might be the most difficult passages in all of Revelation, and some made the argument in all of Scripture to understand. They are packed. So what I want to do together for our time this morning is to go through these chapters and walk through a few of the main symbols and images that are in these chapters one at a time to to dig in to understand them and try and draw out some implications for us today. So let's jump in to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we find there's a break between the sixth trumpet that happens at the end of Revelation chapter 9, and it's kind of an interlude all the way until the end of chapter 11. And so we start with chapter 10, and it says this, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over its head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll open in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hands and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Would you agree there's a lot of different stuff going on here? Uh, First, the the first picture that I really want to like look at today is this angel. Now this angel that we find in this interlude is coming down from heaven to interact with John. And there's some important descriptors that are used to describe who this angel is. He's wrapped in a cloud with rainbows over his head. His face is like the sun and his legs are like pillars of fire. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That is one big angel, is it not? And he calls out and there's thunder. Now, these descriptors actually bring to mind other portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, God descends from Mount Sinai in a thick cloud and in fire that is announced by thunder and by the sound of a trumpet. This reflects the same pattern in Revelation chapter 10. And the point of this reference here is that God's presence, which was with Israel in the wilderness, is going to be with God's new Israel, his church in the wilderness of this world, as the following chapters will show. 
And therefore, the angel of the divine of the Lord, as in the Old Testament, is identified with Yahweh or with Christ even himself. What I'm saying there is that this is not any ordinary angel. This angel has just come from the presence of God and has a message directly from God for John and is actually associated even and identified with Jesus himself. And the second thing that we notice is that this angel is not empty-handed. He has a little scroll in his hand or a little book, your, some of your translations might say. And John is told to go to that angel to take that little scroll from his hand and to eat it. I don't know about you, but where my mind goes is back to elementary school and that kid in class who would be sitting there eating paper. That kid was weird. If that's you today, you don't need to put your hand up. That's okay. We love you. You're welcome here. But that kid would munch on that paper and be like, guys, it's really good. You got to try some, only for him to end up with a stomachache later. And I said him on purpose. It's a boy. Let's be honest. We know. We know it's a guy. And he eats, John eats the paper in this passage. He eats the scroll and he says, this tastes great only for it to be bitter in his stomach. Now, what is going on with this scroll? There's a few important key words that we can see from it. The first one is that it's open. Now, if you remember back to Revelation chapter five, there was another scroll in heaven and this scroll was sealed with seven seals and no one could open it up and people were crying and lamenting that no one could open this seal until the lamb, until Jesus comes and opens the seal. And in chapter five, the scroll represented God's plan of redemption and judgment for the world And that's likely what this scroll in chapter 10 reveals as well. We find out what was written on the scroll in the chapters to come, likely chapters 11 to 22. And John is told to eat the scroll. Again, this seems weird, but this is a reference to another passage in the Old Testament from the book of Ezekiel. The angel instructs John to eat the scroll just like God instructed Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3 to take the scroll and to eat it that it would be sweet in his mouth, but then bitter in his stomach. This picture of eating the scroll is a symbolic picture of internalizing the contents of the message. It is taking it in so that you are hearing and taking in the revelation that God has given to you so that you can then use those words and speak those words prophetically. As a reminder of where we started today, prophecy is speaking words which bring God's fresh order to the world. This is John's responsibility. Just like an umpire's words in a game of baseball shape whether a pitch is a strike or a ball, John's words that he has received from God will now shape the present and future for those who hear them. And this responsibility is both bitter and sweet. Here's how one commentator sums all this up. A message of God may be to a servant of God at once a sweet and bitter thing. It is sweet because it's a great thing to be chosen as a messenger of God, but the message itself may be foretelling of doom and therefore a bitter thing. So for John, it was an infinite privilege to be admitted to the secrets of heaven, but at the same time, it was bitter to have to forecast a time of terror, even if triumph lay at its end. John is giving the message of the little scroll, God's redemptive plan and plan to deal with evil once and for all. And he's told to internalize that message so that he can prophesy, as verse 11 says, to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And it's because of this prophecy that you and I get to read these words in Revelation today and hear God's redemptive plan for history. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And this brings us to chapter 11. 
This portion of scripture is, is packed and it's subtle. There's so much good stuff though in here. It starts in verses one to two and it says this. Then I was giving a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right, let's start with this temple. What is going on with this temple? What is it all about? Is it talking about the temple in Jerusalem that all the people of Israel would have understood? Is it talking about a future temple that needs to be rebuilt? Or is it maybe symbolic of something else? A few things would suggest a more symbolic interpretation. The first one is it's most likely not the temple of Jerusalem because John is writing around 96 AD. And in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Romans. I've actually had a chance to go to Jerusalem and to be there. And the only thing that's left is this tiny portion of the Western Wall where people still gather to pray today. But there's nothing to measure of the temple of Jerusalem left. There's no outer courts. There's none of that to be measured. And so it's not likely the temple in Jerusalem. Well, what about a future temple? Does a future temple need to be rebuilt? This is not likely too, because when we get to the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, we see these words about, about the temple. There is no temple. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Instead of there being one temple where God's presence dwelled, one place where people would go to meet with God, it turns out in Revelation 21 that the whole city, the whole New Jerusalem, is the temple where God and Lamb dwell forever. And this is why a symbolic reading is most likely the best interpretation of what this temple is all about. All throughout the New Testament, we actually have clues as to what this new temple is. It's the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6 says this, For we are a temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The temple of God right now, right here, is the people of God. His plan, which we see from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, was to be with his people always, for his presence to always be available to his people, not just in one set location, but everywhere, all the time. And the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of us who say yes to following Jesus and submitting to him as king as a kind of down payment of that future promise and that reality where God's presence will be everywhere. And John is told to measure this temple, the people of God, because God intends to dwell among his people and to protect his people. Just like at the set, earlier in Revelation, Jesus is at the center of his church and God's presence is now at the center of his church, the new temple. And next we get to verses three to six and they say this, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want." Are you happy that you came to church this morning yet? 
Okay, we got some more pictures. What are these two witnesses? The next image that we have to unpack is who are they and what, what are they all about? Uh, the first thing that we see about these two witnesses is that they are clothed in sackcloth. Now, this is a sign all throughout Scripture of a prophetic calling, and it's also a sign of repentance. These two witnesses wear the sign of repentance because, number one, they are speaking a word that calls for repentance, and number two, they themselves are living in repentance. Now, if you're not from church background, if you're new to Christianity and new to Jesus, repentance is simply a way of saying turning from one direction and turning towards another direction. You're turning from the the way that you are going from the kingdom of this world is how the scripture talks about it, and you're turning towards the kingdom of God. That's what repentance is all about. The second thing that we notice about these witnesses is that there are two lampstands and two olive trees. This is actually a reference to Zechariah in the Old Testament, where in chapter 4, the prophet sees a lampstand, and there are two olive trees on either side. And as you read in chapter 4, you find out that these two lampstands are most likely uh, referring to King Zerubbabel and Joseph, or Joshua, the high priest, and they are two anointed ones. And so what is John saying with this? Is he saying that Zerubbabel and Joshua are going to come back and they are going to be the ones who are going to serve as a prophetic witness? Or maybe is it symbolic of something bigger than just those two people? Does anyone remember what the lampstands have been all throughout Revelation so far? Anybody? Churches. That's right. In Revelation, early in the book, the the lampstand picture is a reference to the churches, the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation that are written to. And this would seem to suggest that the, the churches are the bearers of, this, of the witness. And so why are there two? Why are there two lampstands here? Well, there's a few different theories on this one, but the one that I find most helpful is that in Scripture, the testimony of two people, two witnesses, is bound, bound, uh, binding and true. In Scripture, every legal matter was settled by a minimum of two witnesses in Scripture. And so when we're saying here is the witness of the church, the witness of these two lampstands is true. And as we come to continue to verse 5, if anyone wants to harm these people, if anyone wants to harm these witnesses, fire comes from their mouth and consumes their enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that I've ever breathed fire on anyone before. But we find in this reference, what's most likely going on is a reference again to an Old Testament character of Elijah, who is in in Second Kings confronted by soldiers and and fire comes down to devour his enemies. And we find another reference as we continue reading of water being turned to blood, which as we talked about last week is a reference to Moses and the Exodus story. So we have all of these kind of confusing pictures coming together And here's how Daryl Johnson sums up these pictures and these significance. By means of this dramatic imagery, John is saying that God will do through two witnesses, lampstands, olive trees, what God did through Moses, Elijah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. God will vindicate his message and overcome his enemies. The church is invited into this great tradition of the prophets prophets of old where they would speak the truth about God and their message God will take and he will reign and be victorious through it. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You are invited into this great tradition as a church 
of Moses and Elijah and Zerubbabel and Joshua to speak words of truth. And as we flip ahead to verse 7, we find how, how this prophecy goes for the church. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, if this is a movie and an, uh, there's a picture of this scene going on, the narrator's voice would come over it and go, how did it go? Not great. These witnesses prophesy and a beast comes out from the abyss and kills them. That doesn't sound awesome. And we'll dig more into what this beast is all about actually next week. Is it, there's more of who the beast is in, in Revelation chapter 13. And so this is just a teaser. You can go ahead and read ahead if you want to find out more about the beast. But the, the main thing that I want us to take away about this beast today is this passage reminds us that the real enemy of the witnesses is not humanity, but the beast behind it all. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the ru- but is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The beast overcomes the witnesses after they testify. And I don't know about you, but this leaves me asking the question, why? Why did the one who is more powerful than the beasts allow this to happen? Why did God let these witnesses be overcome? And we get an answer as we keep reading. But after three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them, the witnesses, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. And a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. These witnesses, after they are dead for three days, are resurrected. And this is a reference once again to an Old Testament passage. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel looks over a valley of dry bones and God says to him, prophesy over this valley of dry bones. And he prophesies like God says for him too. And the spirit of God breathes life back into these dry bones and puts on flesh on them and they come back to life. And John is saying here that although it looks like the beast has won when he kills the witnesses, the Spirit of God will breathe new life into them again. If you walk away with nothing from this morning's message, please tune back in for just a moment to hear this word. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be destroyed. Do you believe that, church? Even in this moment where it looks as bad as it could get, the Spirit of God breathes new life back into the church. And the witnesses that ascend to heaven while their enemies watch, an amazing thing happens to them. Remember how we talked about last week at the end of chapter 9, after all these plagues and all these bad things happen, that it's a bit of a downer because there's no repentance. The people stay stuck in their ways, stuck in their violence, stuck in their ways of destruction. And yet in chapter 11 here, 
the survivors are terrified and give glory to God, the people finally repent. This is awesome. But do you notice how the repentance comes about? After the martyrs are suffered and killed, the Spirit of God revives them and then the people repent. This repentance of 90% of the city is a reversal due to the faithfulness of these witnesses. The witnesses are killed, but through their death and the Spirit's power bringing them back to life, 90% of the city is redeemed, which again is a reminder, church, God's hope and God's desire is to always save people. He will allow people to go their own way, but he wants to bring people back to life and back to walking in love. N.T. Wright sums up this passage and this part this way. The martyr witness of the church, in other words, will succeed where the plagues have failed. This is how the nations will come to glorify their creator. This is how the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, which is precisely the point that follows immediately in verse 15. And so let's jump to verse 15 to the end of this chapter. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks Lord God the Almighty who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and severe hail. You made it. We got to the seventh trumpet. Thank you for your patience. And, and we're told what happens after this seventh trumpet is blasted. The kingdom of the world has passed away and the kingdom of Jesus is here to stay forever and ever. That is good news. The picture that John is passing to us in this, in this portion of scripture is that the kingdom of this world is now under the universal reign of Jesus as king. And what remains now is, as this passage puts it, to destroy the destroyers of earth. This is the ultimate meaning and reason for judgment. If you weren't with us last week, one of the things that we talked about is how judgment is actually good news, contrary to what we may think. We sometimes look at judgment and go, God's just wanting to stop us from doing all the fun things that we want to do. He's just trying to keep the good things from us. And that's what God's judgment is all about. But God's judgment, friends, listen to this, comes not to stop us from living, but to stop what keeps us from truly living. His hope for us is that we would have life and life to the full, which is what Jesus says in John 10.10. God's judgment comes to put an end to everything that seeks to spoil and destroy his creation. Revelation chapter 11 shows us that God is on a rescue mission and at the end of chapter 11, we see that everything that causes death must die. The division between heaven and earth where God's space and our space is slowly chipping away and as it does, evil will go with it as well. 
And this is where Revelation 10 and 11 end with a picture of people repenting and turning to God and justice and judgment coming as heaven and earth come closer and closer to being made one. And as we've looked at these two chapters, you may have already picked up a few ideas or a few thoughts that you want to walk away from, but I just want to look at one more question as we walk away together today. What is the role of God's people during this time? What is the role of you and I? What is the role of the future church during this time? In this time where there's judgment and chaos, both right here, right now, and also in these portions of Scripture, what is the church's part to play? Our role can be summed up in this one word, witness. Witness is the language of a courtroom, and witnesses give testimony We are called to testify about Jesus and what we are seeing here, the difference that he has made in our lives. We are called to testify to the fact that the kingdom of God is breaking in and God is inviting all people to repent and to walk into life. And these passages show us so much more depth about this word of witness. The first thing that we see, if you remember, is that these witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. We are invited to stand in the line of the prophets, pointing towards truth. Here's how one commentator sums it up. The truth is this. There is a God, a living God. This is God's world. It works God's way or it does not work. And if we violate God's will and way, it will turn back on us. Sackcloth is about being, speaking the truth to anyone who will listen. Sackcloth is also a sign of repentance, means that we are calling the world to repentance, calling the world back to God, but that we ourselves must also live in repentance. There is nothing in this world that does more damage to the witness of the church than when we miss this point. Jesus encourages us to take the log out of our own eyes before we pick specks out of other people's eyes. We are called to walk in repentance ourselves, not to just tell other people how messed up they are. We have to look in the mirror before we point fingers. And Jesus is saying to his church today, you want to know what the witness that is going to win a whole bunch of people to me is? It's a witness that is born of sackcloth, walking in repentance and humility, not a judgmental witness. Leave that part to me. Jesus is calling us to walk in sackcloth as witnesses, And the second thing that we notice from this passage is that we are witnesses who are empowered by the Spirit. This is the point of the references to Elijah and to Moses and to Zerubbabel and Joshua. We have been given power and authority by God to go out and to speak words of truth. And what is the result of these words? Well, if we're being honest and looking at this passage, sometimes we can find ourselves in trouble. Like umpires getting yelled at at a baseball game for calling it as they see it, sometimes we might be mocked. We may suffer and we may even have to give our lives like the witnesses did in Revelation 11. But here is the incredible thing that Revelation 11 teaches us about this. Even if the witnesses are killed in their line of work, of sharing the good news, of speaking truth, they win. 
Remember, the name of our series is It's Not As It Seems. When the witnesses are killed, it looks like the beast has won. It looks like everything is over and evil has triumphed, but they don't stay dead. The spirit breathes life back into them. And that leads to 90% of the city turning back to God. Even if you are killed, even if the worst thing happens when you try and witness, God still wins. We are called to be faithful. That is our call. And here's how Richard Bauckham sums up this whole idea in this passage. This is the heart of Revelation contained in the scroll. The heart of Revelation's message that the church redeemed from all nations is called to a suffering witness, which by virtue of its participation in Jesus's sacrificial witness can bring the nations to repentance of idolatry and conversion to the true God. In this way, as Jesus's witness is extended universally in the life and the death, as well as the preaching of the church, God's kingdom can come to the nations as salvation rather than judgment. That is God's hope, that his words are received as salvation rather than as judgment. And this is the great mystery of the cross, friends. In that moment where Jesus looked like he had been defeated, where evil had won, where he lays there and dies on the cross, that's actually the moment of his greatest triumph. When he comes out of that grave three days later, everything changed. When it looked like evil was in control, Jesus had actually overcome his enemy. Here's the way one person put it. When death stung Jesus Christ, it stung itself to death. But if we're being honest, this is why the message is both bitter and sweet, isn't it? It's bitter to find out that when we witness and when we talk about Jesus and when we share our testimony about who he is and what he's done in our lives, it's bitter to find out that there's no guarantee it's going to get received well. Has this ever happened to you before? You try to talk about Jesus to someone in your work or at your school or a friend or a family member, and instead of it being received open, with open arms, you're mocked or you're shunned or you're told to stop being such a weirdo. There's no guarantee that things will go well, and that's, that's bitter for us. But there is one promise that we can cling to out of Revelation chapter 11, that there is resurrection life, and that changes everything. It's not by our force or by our power that people change, but by the suffering love following in Jesus' footsteps and the Holy Spirit of God and his power. When we come in witness as humble prophets empowered by the Spirit of God, we win regardless of how well it looks in the moment, regardless of if we're received well, or regardless of even if we have to give our lives, we are given the promise that our love, when we follow Jesus's love, will win in the end. And when you stay faithful to prophetically point to truth, your words, when they are empowered by the Spirit of God, have the power to change people's lives. Do you believe this, church? Remember Ezekiel chapter 37 where Ezekiel prophesies and the spirit of God breathes life back into those dry bones and those dead bodies. Well, guess what, church? This passage is showing us that we have that same power today living within us. When we speak words faithfully, God's spirit does what only he can do and he can bring dead things back to life. And this is our responsibility, church, and our opportunity to be witnesses for Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning?
Father, thank you that you have entrusted this good work to us. But as this passage shows us, it is both a sweet and a bitter work at times. As we listen to your words and as we take them in, Lord, sometimes it can be hard for us to know how to speak. Sometimes we can be fearful and worry about how we're received. And I pray that this chapter and these chapters of of Revelation would build faith in us, Lord, to cling to you and to trust that regardless of how well it goes, if we are faithful and and submit to you, even in suffering love, we win. You triumph through us following Jesus' footsteps, not by our own power or by our own might, but by the Spirit of God and your power. And so God, help us to be faithful. Faithful witnesses pointing people to you when there seems to be messages all around us that are pointing people away from you. Help us, Jesus, strengthen us today to be your faithful witnesses so that people's lives and their eternities may be changed forever. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, church, for being with us today. And if if you're new this morning, uh, we'd love for you to go visit Pastor Josh at the Welcome Center. He'd love to get to know you and say hi this morning. Um, If you're new to faith or you want to start following Jesus and find out a little bit more about what this journey is all about, you can text the word LIFE to 250-478-7113, and one of our pastors will be in touch with you this week. We'd love to follow up with you on that. And if you want to fill out uh, a backpack for the Back to School giveaway, uh, go visit Pastor Josh. He's got some backpacks back at the Welcome Center as well. We love you, church, and go this week empowered by the Spirit of God to be his witnesses. Love you, church, and we'll see you next week.